Again, Mark chapter 9, verses 38 to 40. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It would be better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone who will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The word of the Lord. Challenging words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you this morning. Jesus, you said, apart from you, we can do nothing. So you'd send us the Holy Spirit, our friend, our helper. So we ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, you would open our eyes and our ears, our hearts to this word. There are many things in our lives that discourage us, distract us, that keep us from giving you full attention. So we pray that our full attention would be yours. I pray, Lord, that you'd help me to teach this passage clearly, truthfully, faithfully, and that you would take your word, Lord God, and do with it as you please in our minds and our hearts. Let it form us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Think for a moment about people in your lives who belong to you, those who belong to you. So what I mean is people in your inner circle uh, for whom you'd, you would do, you do nearly anything for them. Those you love and care about the most, those who belong to you, think of them. When I think of those who belong to me, or makes sense to you, I think first of my family. I think of my, my wife and my children. And so, of course, I have a soft spot, a soft spot in my heart for anyone who's good to those who belong to me. And if someone wants to harm those who belong to me, well, it's a very different response. <laughs> I'm sure you, can, you all understand that. You all understand that. You, you get it. I bring that up because I think that idea gets us into to the feel of our passage this morning. In one sense, right, it's a very challenging passage. It's got incredibly strong language. Like tie a cinder block to your neck and jump in the lake. Um, cut your hand off so you don't go to hell. 
strong language. What's going on? But to understand what's happening, I, th- I think the heart of this passage shows itself in verse 41. Jesus says, because you belong to Christ. Because you belong to Christ. That's the idea that holds this passage passage together and helps it make sense to us. The, The entire passage is about how Jesus feels about those who belong to him and how they are to treat others who also belong to him. Just to show you how I see this working in first section, verses 38 to 40, It's about our attitude towards someone who belongs to Jesus but isn't in our immediate group. How should those who belong to Jesus respond to others who belong to Jesus? Second section, that's 41 to 48. Jesus lets you in on how he feels about how people treat those who belong to him. And that's where you get the context for those really serious words. He he cares quite a bit how others treat those who belong to him. And then the third section, he even ends verse 50 with the phrase, be at peace with one another. So what's he talking about? Relationships between those who belong to him. So here's what we need to do. We need, uh, I got four points for us this morning. Number one, we wanna remember just a little of what it means to belong to Christ. That's the foundation of this whole passage what it means to belong to Christ. Then we want to see three things our passage shows us regarding what we are to emphasize in our relationships with others who belong to Christ. So Jesus is talking about how those who belong to to Christ are to treat others who belong to Christ. And so we can summarize those things in these three ways, I think. Humble unity, serious holiness, peaceful obedience, that's where the text takes us. So four, four points, basically. What it means of, to belong to Christ, and we start to look at what that is. Humble unity, serious holiness, peaceful obedience. But, but before we dive in, I think we'll just recognize, does Jesus sound serious about this in these words? And if these words aren't serious, nothing is serious. Jesus is very serious about this. He's serious about how people treat those who belong to him because he's serious about those who belong to him. And if we're serious about Jesus, we will be serious about this as well. So let's dive in. First of all, just the incredible blessing of belonging to Jesus. So as a preacher, this first point is challenging because honestly, what could we say about what it means to belong to Jesus? The, it's a magnificent topic. <laughs> you, could, you could go on forever about the glories of belonging to Jesus. But for this morning, just to point out a few things. Number one, this is how Jesus talks about Christianity in this passage. This is what it is. You belong to him. So it's personal. It's personal. Verse 41, truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong 
to Christ. So, so that phrase there at the end, you belong to Christ, literally it could read, because of your name of Christ, is this idea that Christ's name is stamped on you. You're his. It's just an entirely new identity. Who are you? I belong to Christ. I'm his. Um, illustrations of this. Where, when do we change our name? Well, it's like when you, you got married or it's like you were adopted. Your name changes. You belong to someone. It's a close familial belonging to Jesus. He's brought you as near as you can be. He has identified with you. He cares for you. He takes responsibility for you. So we just remember the scriptures show us truth about Jesus, but it's not just so we can check a list on a piece of paper. The, the truth about Jesus in the scriptures are meant to portray the person of Jesus Christ. He is a person and Christians personally belong to him. What a glorious thing. What a beautiful thing. What's better than that? It's personal. Number two, this idea of belonging to Christ makes it is full of devotion. That's the word I want to portray, devotion. And of course, it begins with Christ's devotion to us. So you, th you think of people who are special to you in your life or people who have shown great commitment to you in your life. Appreciate them so deeply. But, but none of them can compare to the devotion of Jesus. We remember Mark 10.45. Look at Mark 10.45. Even the Son of Man came not to, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I'll just ask you, Christian, if you're a Christian today, how devoted is Jesus to you? How devoted to you is he really? Does he, does he stay at a distance until you kind of prove yourself? Is that how this worked? Is it kind of a give and take? You do a little, I'll do a little. What did he do for you? He gave up his life for you. And when did he do that? Did he do that as you were so glorious and holy and righteous and, and wanting to follow him? Or did he do it while you were a rebellious sinner who could not care less about him? While we were sinners, Christ died for us. I've never, it's hard to comprehend love like that. We, we all know the sense of having enemies or people who mistreat us or do us wrong. I'll just tell you, my first inclination is not to die for them. <laughs> Doesn't even enter my mind, really. That's probably true for you. That's what Jesus did for you. That's how devoted he is to his people. We know Jesus is one magnificent person with two natures from all eternity. He's the divine son of God. And that divine son of God took on human flesh. And a major reason for that was so that he could become killable and die on a cross in your place. And there, if you're a Christian, he ransomed you. He 
bought you. And if you trust him, you are his. You do not even belong to yourself anymore. You belong to him, this one who was so devoted to you. He bought you out of the penalty of sin. He took the wrath you deserve so that you can be forgiven. He bought you out of the power of sin. So your eyes can be open to see the goodness of God and his ways and you want to know him and love him and follow him. And the price he paid to have you was his own life on a cross. And not only did Jesus show his devotion to us there on the cross, he remains devoted to us forever. He, he rose from the dead. He reigns now. He's interceding for us now, devoted to us. One day he's going to return it's devoted to us, and he will be forever. You have no idea how much Jesus loves you if you're a Christian. Isn't that wonderful? Some days it feels like the Holy Spirit kind of lets us get a sense of how much Jesus loves us. It'll melt you, it'll make you cry. You still don't even know. It's, it's almost uncomfortable sometimes to be loved this much so exhaustively, so completely, so eternally. In fact, the apostle Paul says we have to pray for help just to get it. Look at Ephesians 3. This is just part of a prayer in this section. He's, he's, Paul's praying for the church. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. And what love do you think that is? Your love for God? Do you want to be rooted in your love for God? No, thank you. Um, what love is that that you're rooted in? Well, it's his love for you and Christ, being rooted and grounded in love. So, so now we pray in verse 18 that the Holy Spirit would give you strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, what is the length? What is the height? What is the depth? What's he trying to say? It's just so enormous. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Isn't that, isn't that a mysterious idea? I mean, you can't know it. It surpasses knowledge. Well, wait, what that means is you can't know it exhaustively. You can't know all of it, but can you know some of it? Absolutely, and you want to grow in knowing more and more and more. And that's how we can be filled with all the fullness of God. Do, do you see, this is the root of the tree. For the tree to grow, we have to know we belong to Jesus Christ. It's personal. He's devoted to us. Well, of course, how do we want to respond to devotion like that? You know, wave it off, be bored with it. No, no way. How do, we, how do we want to respond? We want to respond with our own devotion to him. Not that it measures up to his devotion to us. No, it never could. But it is an echo of his devotion to us, that we would be devoted to him. Of course, that begins with faith. We believe God and his word about what he's done for us in Christ. We repent and turn away from our sin, our 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 autonomy, our rebellion. We turn away from that. We turn to Jesus. 
and we want to live for him. Galatians 2.20 puts it like this. Will you read it with me? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see Paul there thinking of the devotion of Jesus? He loved me. He gave himself for me. And now the life I live, I live in devotion to him, trusting him. So it's the greatest thing there could be to belong to Jesus. So I'll just pause right here. If you, I want you to know that if you don't already belong to Jesus, and somehow maybe you're realizing that this morning, you are invited to belong to Jesus right now. His invitation is open. He, he says himself, repent and believe. Turn away from your autonomy, your pride, rebellion. Trust me. Trust, trust yourself to me. I'll forgive you of all your sins. I'll bring you near as a child of God. I'll be devoted to you forever. We belong to Jesus Christ. All right, if you truly belong to Jesus Christ, that's gonna change how you view other people. Sometimes I talk to people who are like, oh, my first impression of people is always right. And I'm like, no, it's not. Um, but we have first impressions, don't we? Oh, somebody's like this, somebody's like that. And, and we give, what do we do? We almost like give value to someone based on our own preferences, things we see about the world. It's easy to do. It's, a, it's this totally human thing to do. But if you belong to Christ and it's by his grace, right? You didn't earn it. If you belong to Christ by his grace and you are moved by his devotion to you and you wanna live in devotion to him, will you see the echo of what's coming? If you are devoted to Jesus Christ and you know he is devoted to his people, then what should that start to do in how you view others who belong to Christ? There's a preciousness there. And we start to see Jesus deal with that in this passage. Takes us to the first application. So back in Mark 9, verses 38 to 41, John says, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. Key words. This guy, whoever he is, is doing ministry in whose name? Jesus' name. But he's not following, what word does John use here? Us. So just a, an interesting dichotomy. Is John and that group of disciples, are they truly following Jesus? Yes, they are. Is this guy, whoever he is, following them? Not, not exactly in this situation. But is he following Jesus? Seems like it. But John is not happy with this. He, he seems to have this assumption, if you're not in our specific group, you don't really know Jesus or do work for him. So John is stopping, it looks like, good work, because he doesn't see it as our work. 
And, and Jesus' reply teaches an incredible lesson. You know, you just think of this passage from Mark's point of view. By Mark's time, right, churches were spreading just everywhere. Mark is in Rome, we believe. He's talking to the church in Rome. So, so each true church, right, so formed by the people there, what they're like, um, the cultural stuff going on in each, in each place, um, all these things that make people what they are. True churches, do they have strengths? Yeah, they have strengths. Do they have weaknesses? Undoubtedly so. And we think of our time, right? 2,000 years later, the church has spread globally, incredibly. Local churches, denominations influenced by all the here and there of history and culture, but true churches, do they have their strengths? Yeah, do they have their weaknesses? Undoubtedly so. And yet it's easy. And I'll resist showing you applications because it'll be easy for you to figure it out. It is easy for us, whoever the us is in our group, to look at the them, whoever the they are in their group with an attitude of suspicion or competition, isn't it? It's easy. Don't get me wrong. I believe what I believe on purpose. I've thought about a lot of things, but some of these things are important. I have convictions, and if I believe something is right, just like you, if you believe it because you think it's right, somebody else doesn't believe it, well, we can't both be right. We admit that. And sometimes it'll be hard to do local church or denominational fellowship with, be, with each other because some of these issues are pretty important. But we, we never want to forget what's most important. And not all truths are equally important for unity. And Jesus reminds us here that he is far greater than just our smaller groups doesn't he? Look what he says, verse 39. Now remember, Jesus is talking about somebody who's not walking with these disciples. And he says in verse 39, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will, will be able soon afterward to speak of me for the one who is not against us is for us. So what is Jesus saying? Even if somebody has some of these details different than your group, if they belong to Jesus, and I'll just ask again to clarify, what, what does it mean to belong to Jesus? Is it your uh, theological maturity? Those who can write a 20-page paper on TULIP belong to Jesus. <laughs> Only those. I like TULIP. I can, I can go longer than 20 pages. All who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is a person who saves those who repent of their sins and trust in him and who he is and what he's done. And that's enough, isn't it? So is that enough to belong to Jesus? True faith in the person of Jesus Christ? That's enough. They belong. Can you belong to Jesus and be really wrong on some theological issues? Yeah. Can you belong to Jesus and be, be wrong on all sorts of things in this world? For sure. If somebody belongs to Jesus, what is Jesus saying about what your first emphasis towards them ought to be? 
He is saying your first emphasis ought to be humble unity expressed in service. Look at the other side of the coin just for a moment. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this, Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. You see the difference? In Mark, he said, for the one who's not against us is for us. But in Matthew, he says, whoever is not with me is against me. The question is not, are they following us? We get so myopic about that. The question is, are they following him? And if they are, then he calls us to emphasize humble unity uh, cultivated by service, expressed in service. I find it so fascinating that right after verse 40 is verse 41. Look at verse 41. For I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. It's amazing. If your motivation, Jesus says, is, is kindness and service to someone else because you're so thrilled with Jesus' devotion to you, and you want to show love to someone else, even the smallest thing, because they belong to him, Jesus says, I'll remember that. I will reward you for that. He calls for humble unity cultivated by service. You know, it's interesting. We, we tend to serve those we love. We also tend to love those we serve. There's something, too, if you're you don't particularly enjoy someone or you find a context difficult, if you show love and service to someone, your heart can actually grow in compassion, in understanding, in grace. You, you grow in love for that person as you serve them. So Jesus says, okay, do they belong to me? Yes. Are they just like you? Not necessarily. What should you do? Serve them. Serve them. I'll remember it. And you see the positive side of Jesus' passion for his people. I mean, I, I get this. Uh, just an illustration. Some of you are so good and so kind to my children. Who do I love? I love my children. I love them so much. When anyone is kind and good to my children, you'll understand. Thank you. Thank you. I, I only share that to say, Jesus feels this way about his people. Do you see the positive side of his passion? He loves his people so much that he is telling you, my love for my people is so abounding, I'll reward you if you are good to my people. That's what he said. It's his passion for those who belong to him. So we need to have this in our hearts. Those who belong to Jesus should emphasize humble unity expressed in service. That should be part of how we relate to one another. Next point, we've, we've talked about what it means to belong to Jesus. We're, we're thinking about what to emphasize in our relationships. Here's the second part of that. Serious holiness. So now we come to some of the strongest words you could ever encounter, some of the strongest words in the Bible. And I guess we could say this is the negative side of Jesus' passion for those who belong to him. So if you're good to his people, he's gonna remember and reward you. If you are not good to his people, he remembers that as well. Are you, ready to, are you ready to look at this? Are you sure you're up for it? Look at verse 42. 
Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Who are the little ones in context? That's Christians. It's those who belong to him. What's a millstone? It's so heavy, it often needed to be pulled by a donkey. It, it, um, it crushes grain. It mills. So if you have that tied to your neck and you go for a swim, you're going to stay down there. Now, are we to take this literalistically? No. Please, I don't want to hear about anybody trying to tie any rocks on anybody's necks. That's not what this, that's not what this text is about. It's, a, it's an illustration Don't take that illustration literalistically. And yet, is Jesus being literal in his feeling? There is something he strongly dislikes. I mean, if you can imagine somebody looking you in the eye and being like, you're going to do that? You might as well throw a rock to your neck and jump in the sea. You'd be taken aback by the sobriety of that. That is what Jesus is saying to the world. And what is it that fires him up? If you cause any of these little ones who believe in me to sin. What is sin? It starts with a heart inclination, right? It's an inclination against God expressed in disobedience to his word. So it's more than just disobedience to a commandment. It's an inclination of the heart and the mind. We don't, we don't like God. We don't want to submit to him. So it will show itself in our disobedience to his word. But, but here we look at sin from another angle in a, in a way because in our sin, right, we show belonging to something or someone other than Jesus. If I'm content in my belonging to Jesus, that is going to prone me towards obedience To live in practice sin shows, displays belonging to something else. And so if I were to influence you to sin, I'm actually driving a wedge between you and the Lord. I'm pushing on your belonging to him. I am competing with the one who gave his life for you. That is, thinking about these words, that's not really a place I want to be. I do not want to stand before the tidal wave of Jesus' love for his people as an enemy. And what a warning this is. What a warning this is. It's a warning to individuals, to churches, to denominations who claim Jesus but then influences people to not obey him according to his word. There's a million examples throughout church history and today, but there is always a trend for church somehow to look at something which is valued in our culture but contradicts the word of God, and some Christian somewhere will say, oh, it's okay. Could be this this issue or that issue, right? Every time, every place fits more with Scripture or against Scripture, depending on the issue. We understand that. But there's always going to be someone who says, 
oh, it's okay. Jesus doesn't care about that. It's okay. And lean into the cultural moment instead of what the word of God says. And, and, and this warning is for those people. It's not okay. So we wanna influence one another towards our belonging to Christ and not away from it. That's why I call this serious holiness. Holiness is to be set apart, right? And so really it's almost a synonym of belonging to Jesus. I'm set apart to Jesus, I belong to him. So we wanna move one another towards that, Jesus says. Not only so, if we're going to not influence others to sin, Jesus says we need to fight our own sin. So if, if the above is true for our relationship with others, not tempting any, influencing anyone to sin, what, what about our very selves? Well, now you look at 43 to 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why would you do that? Because there's two places you can go. You can get the kingdom. What was the other one? Hell. You know, a lot of us, and I understand, we're looking in this passage for the third place. Honestly, with broken hearts, we're looking for the third place, kind of, in our minds. We're reading this. So I saw there was two places. There was the kingdom and there was hell. Was there anywhere else? There was not anywhere else according to Jesus. And in order to see the kingdom, you need to, in a way, be killing something, right? Now, again, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. This is strong language. It's illustrative. It's metaphorical. Should anybody be doing this literally? Physically maiming yourself to fight sin? No. Found of life, we are officially against such things. That is not the right way to interpret this passage. And even in Jesus' words, it's obviously not... What he means, back in Mark 7, he told us what the problem is. The problem's our heart. I could cut off all sorts of stuff and still be very sinful from the heart. Wouldn't change anything. So, so what is this illustration teaching us? Well, first of all, you see he mentions the hand, the foot, and the eye. Well, your hands, that's, that's what you do. Your feet, that's where you go. Your eyes, that's how you see and understand things, what you value. So this is meant to encompass all of life then, all of life. And so Jesus is saying, cut out the influences in your life that cause you or tempt you to sin against Jesus Christ. Cut them out. And just in this, in this illustration, is is there sometimes a loss in your experience of life in order to fight sin? Yes, there sometimes is. Again, there could be infinite applications of this. I'll try in a few just to get our minds thinking about it. What if social media has your mind, your mouth, or at least your thumbs, um, repeatedly doing things it should not. You find that in your case, you are looking at things you should not be looking at, thinking about things in an, in an inappropriate way or even communicating in a way where you're like, this is not godly. There is study after study showing this is, 
This is poison for our youth. For some of you, this is no legalistic rule, I'm making no demand, but for some of us, should we just get off social media? Is there a loss in a way if you get off social media? Yeah. Relational collateral, I don't know, a whole bunch of things you wouldn't be able to participate in if you were off social media. But I just let you know, I'm pretty much off social media. I'm far happier. That, that's no law. That's a suggestion where you're looking at, you know, there's this thing that's inclining me away from living and belonging to Jesus. Cut it off. Or you could think of an occupation, a job, where they're demanding something uh, that, that compromises your integrity. Or you're creating a... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, something you sell. You're, you're, you're creating something that is actually bad for the world, unbiblical, wrong. And, and your conscience might say, I can't do this anymore. Could you lose something if you give up on that career? You certainly could. Or... There could be certain relationships where you are no longer salt and light to them. They are bringing you into practiced sin. Sometimes we need to lose relationships or they need to change drastically. Yes. Do you lose something? Is it painful? Yes. Here's the point Jesus is saying very clearly. You've got to be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. You have got to be killing your sin or your sin will be killing you. You can't keep flirting with it. You can't keep compromising over it because you can't fundamentally belong to Jesus and practiced sin. You cannot. There's two places because there's two leaders you follow one or the other. And continually practicing sin, the Bible as a whole shows us, it exposes a fake faith. If you won't fight practiced, obvious sin, it exposes a fake faith. And you understand this. You do this in your own relationships. If you, have a, if you have a relationship with someone, they're like, I love you. I'm your best friend. I'll always be there for you. You're, so, you're everything to me. And then continually, they're stealing from you, mistreating you. At some point, are you like, I hear what you're saying. I'm not sure you actually love me. It's the same thing with Christ. And continue, so continually practicing sin not only exposes fake faith, Jesus is very clear here, it can send you to hell if you don't fight your sin. So there's urban legend out there. Have you heard it? The God of the Old Testament, he's all wound up. He's angry. He's mean. But Jesus, he's cool, right? He's chill. He's not worried about it. You get law with the Old Testament. You only get, you get grace with Jesus. Well, we just read words from probably the earliest gospel out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. 
And I don't know what, I don't know what you heard, but I heard him talking about hell. <laughs> Nobody talks about hell in the New Testament more than Jesus Christ, the one who died to take our hell. It's a real thing. So we're either overboard, right? You Christians, hellfire and brimstone full of legalism. Well, we don't want to be that. But if hell is real and we don't actually talk about it, we're no longer loving. And so you see this sober pull to repent of sin and trust Jesus Christ and live in belonging to him. This references to the worm does not die and the fire does not burn out. It's looking back at some of the message of the prophets and it refers to this valley near Jerusalem the Israelite kings of old who abandoned the true worship of God for, for idols would sacrifice their children down in that valley. And then Josiah, a righteous king, he undid all that, broke down all the altars, and he turned it into basically a garbage disposal. And so, yeah, the, the trash was always burning. And yeah, there were, there were maggots in the trash. And that's the illustration Jesus pulls from to talk about hell, a metaphor for this eternal undoing. So right here, I don't know about you, but I just want to run back to the gospel in my heart and be like, Jesus, have mercy on me. Save me from my sins. And he does and he will, right? He took our hell on the cross. Remember the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended into hell. We, we're not to understand that literally. What it means is on the cross, he took the hell you and I deserve. If you trust in him, you've been set free. You're forgiven. To wrap this section up though, how should we live in relationship with one another? Com serious holiness. Serious holiness, because it's about ultimately belonging to Jesus. Uh, third application of belonging to Jesus. Look at verses 49 to 50. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So I'm sure you all understand that. Let's just wrap it up and pray. What do you mean? Now, one thing, I mean, I like to eat salt on my food, do you? So I'm like, more salt, the better. But honestly, we're probably sitting here thinking, what, what is this about? Strange language about salt. Well, number one, you see, everyone gets salted somehow. So whatever that means, it's gonna happen to all of us, right? We get salted with fire. Second, we need Salt to stay salty. It's the second thing we see. Third, you're supposed to have salt in yourself. Let's try to understand those three things. Number one, everyone gets salted. Well, to get into the idea of salt, in the ancient world, you don't have refrigerators. How do you preserve things? Salt. Salt is a preservative. Salt lasts. Salt makes things last. If you read Numbers, you read Leviticus, many of the offerings in the tabernacle had salt in them. Obviously, that's, that's symbolic. Symbolic for what? It's symbolic for how eternally faithful God is to his covenant. It won't rot. It won't corrupt. It lasts forever. 
and the, and the, the faithfulness of our covenant with God, it's salted, it's preserved. He's going to keep it. He's going to keep it, keep the covenant. We also know, just in this cultural moment, some, in some cases, salt could get so mixed with impurities, it looks like salt, but it's lost its saltiness. It doesn't taste right. It doesn't preserve any longer because it's so full of other minerals or what have you. So when you, when you see it that way, that salt is the symbol of preserving covenant faithfulness, God keeping his promises to us and us living in light of those promises. Well, the first thing, we're all gonna get salted with fire. I think it's this idea of the testing that comes even from passages like these, where we have to fight our sin, especially in relationships with other people. And it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, honestly, sometimes what is more difficult than relationships with other Christians. It can be so hard. It's part of this refining thing. And it's, it's a major way we keep our covenant relationship with Jesus and he with us. So we're going to be salted. And here it's here in the moment of, show, of, of living in light of these relationships belonging to Jesus that we are salted. He preserves us. He keeps us. He forms us, sanctifies us. Second, Jesus says, salt is good. If the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Well, we'll think about this. If, if, if we were delighted by belonging to Jesus and we lived in light of it, doesn't that give us a flavor and a taste? Living in grace and truth and love, living holy lives, we'd be salty. We'd have a taste. But what if we compromise on all this? What if we give up on all this? Our, our belonging to Jesus almost has no taste. Our relationships with others don't look Christian. We don't stand out anymore, right? We're supposed to be the salt of the earth. And it's in our devotion to Christ that we can even be salty. And so if we compromise on this, we're not salty anymore. Anybody can be generally nice out there. Don't you know that? You don't have to be a Christian to be generally nice. Belonging to Jesus and living in relationship with his people like this, it stands out. Get salted, stay salty. And then he says, have salt in yourselves. Have salt in yourselves. Well, if it's true that salt represents covenant faithfulness, and what does that mean? That means you should have this deep zeal in your own heart to be faithful to Jesus in your relationships and especially to obey him. A couple commentators I looked at, they mentioned this verse, so I'll mention it as well. Just another way to see this idea. Romans 12, verse one. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your life is the sacrifice. And if in the Old Testament, those, so many of those sacrifices have salt, then your life as a sacrifice has salt and that you are seriously committed to obeying Jesus Christ. 
That's the salt in yourself. Because he's so devoted to you and you want to be devoted to him, you are seriously committed to obedience. And I think it's so wonderful that in this passage in Mark, it finishes like this. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What can bring us peace together when everything around is trying to disrupt that peace? It's going to be devotion to Jesus and obedience to him. That shuts our mouths from things we shouldn't say. That cleanses our minds. That influences our hearts. It really ties the whole thing together to be delighted again with what it means to belong to Jesus by grace through faith and to show that grace to others who belong to Jesus and to be serious about holiness and to desire to obey him. And guess what it leads to? It's not harsh, everyone. It leads to peace, to peace, to well-being, to wholeness. So in conclusion, do you belong to Jesus? Do you know his personal devotion to you? Do you see his personal devotion to others? Are you willing to lean into that, how, to how that transforms your relationships with others? We wanna emphasize humble unity expressed in service, a community of serious holiness and peace through obedience. Let's pray. Jesus, these are challenging words. And we're left, we're left thinking about you and what you've said and what that means for our everyday, what that means for one another, our relationships with one another, our view of the world, how we live. So Lord, I pray for each one of us here that you'd give us one specific target to think about, that you'd show us what you're saying to each one of us. Lord, if someone is not yet a Christian today, I pray their minds would just be on what it could mean to belong to Jesus, to have the Son of God as their own, died to save them. Lord, um, that you would move someone to trust you and belong to you. And Lord, Lord, for those of us who do know you, I pray that you'd show us one targeted place where we need to live this out, either in our habits, something we need to quote unquote cut off, cut out. Lord, that you give us strength and zeal to do that, that you'd help us get help to do that, that we would wanna live in holiness, Lord, that we would never want to influence one of your people away from you and Lord, I also just wanna thank you. I wanna thank you for this congregation and how incredibly peaceful these wonderful people are and how they express service to you in a thousand ways and bear with one another and forgive one another and love one another. We wanna give you glory for the peace that is in our midst. And we pray that it would continue and that it would just be shown in, in a zeal that we each have to obey you because you are so devoted to us and that our peace would flourish. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, amen.